6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his teaching on the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. As God announces he's going to work through David, it allows Satan to focus his attack on the Davidic line. And attacks all the way, the whole chronicle of the Bible history is Satan's attempt to thwart the plan of God. Joram kills all his brothers but misses one. The Abram slew all but Ahaziah. Athaliah kills all but she misses Joash. And then Hezekiah is assaulted and so forth. You can go through the whole history, historical books of the Bible, and see it's really a drama where Satan is trying to thwart the plan of God. Haman's attempt to wipe out the Jews in the days of Esther is again another chapter in this attempt to, of Satan to wipe out God's program. In the New Testament, it continues. Joseph's fear about Mary being pregnant. Herod's attempts by wiping out all the babes in, at Nazareth when he opens up his ministry. They try to throw him off a cliff. During his ministry, there are two storms at sea that terrify the local fishermen. Men who knew those waters, who made their living on those waters, were terrified. I'm, I suggest those storms were not normal storms. And of course, the ultimate is the cross. I don't know cross. And all this is summarized in Revelation 12, as is just we've skimmed through. But the main point that I want to make, and the reason we're going through this, is Satan is not finished yet. He's not through with us. We need to understand that. We need to understand his titles. He's the prince of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the head of the world, rulers of darkness. He's the god of this age. We need to understand that. As we, as we watch the media and the, the whole tide of circumstance shape things that are irrational, we begin to see Satan's hand moving uh, in his domain here. So our present predicament, let's take a look at ourselves in America. We are in moral freefall. We are victims of spiritual warfare. Well, we got financial problems. We got military problems. No, no. Those are all derivative of our spiritual bankruptcy. We have the media that's supposed to inform a free people shaping our opinions rather than informing them. They're masking the truth. We've never seen that more evident than in the past year where they, they spent media tries to hide the information that we need. We have courts that are perverting justice. There's no longer separation of powers as the Constitution provided. We have schools that are deliberately designed to dumb down our youth. That's the program. That's the plan. Check it out. We have replaced our traditional heritage with multiculturalism, revisionism, and values relativism. They can't find truth because truth is all relative. You have your truth, I have mine. That's denying that truth exists, of course. And one of the tragic byproducts of all this is our what used to be called patriotism is now relegated to a form of idol worship. We worship a myth that was America decades ago, is no longer. 
Our government is now the purveyor of immorality. That may like sound like a very disturbing conclusion. Why are we surprised? Governments have always in loved crises. They provide the rationale for increased budgets, bureaucracies, and subjugating the population. Governments are the adversary of your liberties. Most new dictators of countries create external crises in order to consolidate their internal powers. In our country, they've long ago learned that social crises serve just as well as military ones. And this, there is one insight that supplies the key missing link here, if, is that immorality creates the social crisis which gives the government the excuse to grow and, and, and strengthen itself. So why are we surprised that governments now have an enormous incentive to promote immorality? Let me diagram it. Governments love military crises because it gives them budgets and growth and so forth. But it turns out in our country, social crises work just as well. War on poverty, war on terror, whatever. Now, social crises come about because of immorality. That's what creates HIV. That's what creates the need for abortions and what have you. It's immorality. Is it any surprise that the government has an incentive to create, to promote the immorality that creates the crises to grow the government so that these all grow? And that's what we've been watching in the decades, since about 19, the early 1960s on. You can just see all these things mathematically escalate. So that leads us to this issue of how do we prepare ourselves as we find ourselves in this agony of deceit that we find ourselves in. That's the armor of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18. Paul gives us our imperative. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I want you to notice that's a command. That's an imperative. It's in the imperative mood. This is not an option. This is a command to you from God. It's in the present tense. That means be continually strong. Not something you do once and, all, once and for all. No, no. It's, it's a continual process. It's a command. It's present tense. Be continually strong. It's in the passive voice, by the way. It's not something you do. It's something that's done to you. It's not your strength. It's God's strength that's imputed to you. So it's the passive voice. In the power of his might. Krate is the word power that overcomes resistance. The same term used in, uh, that empowers Christ's miracles. In the power of his might. Not your might. His might. God's inherent strength is the issue here. That's your imperative. To take advantage of that. To receive that. And rely upon that. And then he continues. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You're in a conflict with Satan. Put on the whole armor of God. Not just a piece or two. There's going to be seven different elements to this. Not just your favorite pieces. The form of the Greek imperative put on indicates that the believers are responsible for putting on God's, not their, full armor. You're putting on his armor, not yours, his armor. Panoplian. Be completely armed. That verse is, that's used here in verse 11. It's going to be repeated in verse 13. Be completely armed. If you have a vulnerability, that's where he's going to get you. And you do all this before the battle begins, in theory. But you're already on enemy turf. You're in that engagement whether you realize it or not. That's Paul's burden here. And here's why. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, 
against spiritual wickedness in high places. He's not talking about politicians. They may be included in some sense, but no, he's really addressing the powers behind the things that we encounter. These are ranks of fallen angels and demons. Now, there's a glimpse of this going on in the Bible that is another, I think it's also illustrative. So let me just insert here a review of 2 Kings 6, verse 8 and following. The king of Syria was warring against Israel. And he took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, Elisha, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not in such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. In other words, the Syrians are planning something, but the prophet of God tips off Israel as to what they're going to do, and thus they avoid disaster. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there, not once or twice. In other words, this is a summary of many, many incidents of this kind. In fact, that's the problem. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. He called a servant and said to them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? The king of Syria presumes there's a mole on the staff. Someone on the staff is tipping off the Israelis with what I'm going to do. He is taking for granted there's a security leak among his own leaders here. One of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. As I'm fond of pointing out, this is the first recorded case of telephone taps in the Bible. I mean, that's the impression that you get here. See, in other words, what the king of Israel says in his own bedchamber, somehow Elisha knows it. So this advisor says, oh, he said, and then the king says, okay, go spy out where he is, that is Elisha is, that I may send and fetch him. And I was told him, well, behold, he's in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city of Dothan round about. Got the picture? They're not surrounding Israel. They're surrounding Elisha and his servant, this little village. And when the servant of the man of God rose up one morning, he gets up the next morning. That's the servant of the man of God. When the servant of the man of God was risen up that early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And a servant said unto him, to Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? He's pretty shook up. Wakes up in the morning for breakfast, looks outside, and realizes they're surrounded by the whole Syrian army. What are we going to do? And Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I assume the servant says, Yeah, that sounds pretty good, but I hear their engines running, you know. Elisha, and, and so the servant is terrified. Elisha's nonplussed, no problem. And I sort of visualize Elisha at the end of his patience. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Can you picture that? That's our problem in life. We can't see. We don't see the darkness. We don't see our own resources. Um, I'm always reminded uh, when I think about this, with, uh, when, if you use a computer and use word processors, 
you on your computer, you can write a letter or an email or whatever, and you can type all this stuff, and it comes out, and, and, and you can save the file. So, well, behind the scenes, there's all kinds of things going on you really don't want to be bothered with. How large are the letters? What font are they on? Are they italic or bold? Are they underlined or not? Where are the margins? Where are the tab stops if you indent? There's probably a hundred questions, theoretically, you have to answer before the computer can do that for you. So they adopt some general rules. If you don't tell it differently, it's going to do it this way. If you want to change it, you can, but usually don't want to bother. You follow me? And there are, are and you can, there are control, there are things you can do to make, a, make the margins wider or smaller, whatever. There are times where you may want to do something a little different with your text, something special. And so there's usually in your software a, a reveal codes key. All the codes that are lying behind your letters are, are, are invisible. You don't want to bother seeing those. But there are times you want to see them, so you push the reveal codes key, and suddenly up comes in all these different colors, where the margins are, where the tab stops are, where the instructions are to change the font from this or that, make it a tab, all that stuff there, uh, which would normally be in your way in your thinking, is there if you need it. And I've often, when, if you've played with a computer that way, I've often thought, you know, that's our problem in life. We need a revealed codes key, a button we could push that would show us, like the young man, the chariots of fire that surround us, that are protecting us from these spooks that are after us, and so on. And uh, this is one of those little glimpses in the scripture that gives us a, a sense that behind what you and I see going on are spiritual forces that are actually determining the, determining the outcome. So, okay, let's continue with uh, Paul's rendering down here. So he's talking; he's getting ready to talk about your armor here. It says Paul says, verse thirteen. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. There's that same phrase again. The whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The whole armor, not just your favorite pieces. You want to be completely armed is the emphasis here. To withstand or stand up against the evil day. So now Paul is going to go through his list of armor. And uh, his detailed description of this armor most commentators presume he's doing, he's speaking in these terms because he's chained to a guard. A Praetorian guard is chained to him. Do you know why that guard is chained to Paul? So that he can't get away. <laughs> Can you imagine being chained to Paul for a whole shift? That's, that's got to be an experience. And, and that may be, in fact, what's going on here, but I suspect that that, that viewpoint that's widely held, overlooks something else. The Holy Spirit is actually using idioms that are from the Old Testament. You'll find these idioms, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet, all those things you'll find are drawn from Isaiah and other patches in the Old Testament. So it's not just the fact that there happens to be a Roman soldier standing next to him. But let's just go through it here. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's take this first one. Paul starts with a guy's belt. And, uh, uh, you know, what, he calls it, you know, be girt about with truth. Remember, what is truth? That was that cynical question that Pilate asked, not really expecting an answer. Truth is our most special treasure to be coveted. 
Truth is more precious than anything you can imagine. If you're concerned with victory or achieving any kind of worthwhile goal, you start with truth. The pursuit of truth is the greatest challenge to each of us and all of us together. And that's what's so tragic about our current culture, which denies the existence of any absolute truth. And that's, of course, uh, heresy. Now, the Roman belt, by the way, was about six to eight inches wide. All the body armor and weapons were attached to it. In other words, everything somehow, you know, related to that. Well, what do we really mean by truth? I love the definition. I first got it from my wife, uh, from her reading. It says, truth is when the word and the deed become one. I love that. How descriptive. The ultimate truth, of course, is the fulfillment of God's promises in his Messiah. God promised it in his word, and his word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. It was prophesied of Christ that righteousness would be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. That's in Isaiah 11. There again, truth and righteousness is associated with your belt, your basic, basic item. And then having on the breastplate of righteousness. What do we mean by the breastplate of righteousness and whose righteousness are we talking about? Let me ask you a question. What is your most important stewardship? Your wives will see you and say, well, gee, my most important stewardship is my profession, to be good at my profession. Your wife would nudge you with her elbow and say, no, no, your most important stewardship is your family. That even comes before your profession. You know, you get those discussions. There's something even more important than either one of those. What's your most important stewardship? Let me tell you, it's your heart. You need to guard your priorities with respect to your heart before all things. And the breastplate is what protects your heart, you see. The breastplate, in the Roman breastplate was bronze, backed with leather, and the breastplate secured the vitals. That's why a piercing of the breastplate was usually decisive. Because it covered the heart. And it's that idiom's used all through Romans 6, 14, Isaiah 59, James 4, elsewhere. A blow through the breastplate was usually decisive or fatal. Okay, let's go on. And your feet shy. And by the way, the breastplate of righteousness, it's his righteousness, not yours, of course. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's quite a mouthful. And your feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace. What on earth is he talking about? Well, shoes and greaves, often of brass and the like, were part of military armor. Why? The use of them was to defend the feet against gall traps, other kinds of obstructions designed to entangle the feet. If you've ever watched a professional boxer or wrestler or hand-to-hand guy, his, his stance, his footwork is foundational, just foundational. And uh, the, uh, anyone that's, you know, when at the Naval Academy, you have two years of boxing, two years of wrestling, and then we climax with a hand-to-hand to tie it all together. And uh, one thing you quickly learn if you're in the ring or anywhere else is your stance, your footwork is fundamental. And... Uh, I quickly learned that the hard way at the Naval Academy, let me tell you. And uh, I'll come back to that in a minute here. But So when you're fighting with swords, of course, your first slip is usually your last. So you need to be uh, strong on your feet. Preparation is the prerequisite to success in anything you're doing. And here, the whole idea is to do your foundational preparation in understanding the gospel of peace. 
And uh, that's, that's just fundamental here. And Paul continues, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fire, all the fiery darts of the wicked. The shield of faith. Interesting idiom here. A Roman shield was about four feet high and about two and a half feet wide, curved. It overlaid with linen and leather to absorb any fiery arrows and so forth. The integrity of the warrior's shield was essential. And what they would do is between battles, when they're at rest in the barracks, they would examine their shield and they'd plug any holes that were there from the last engagement. The time to plug the holes was before the next battle. Well, you're already in the battle. It's high time for each of us to examine our shield of faith and if there's a hole in it somewhere, there's some aspect of it that bothers you. There's something in there that needs an answer. Track it down. Get it resolved. You need your shield of faith to be bulletproof because you're going to be engaged if you're, if you're going to be any you know, relevance at all. And diligence is the key to proper maintenance of everything, but especially our shield. You need to be diligent. You need to deal with it. And take the helmet of salvation. That's an interesting phrase, the helmet of salvation. And then he's going to go on with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But let's take this helmet of salvation first. What is the helmet of salvation? That's what protects the head, right? The helmet provided protection for the head. What is your protection head? Your assurance of your security. It, we uh, strongly urge you to resolve any doubt you have about your eternal security in Christ. The believer knows that ultimate victory is certain, is sure, it's determined. The ultimate believer's assurance is a critical blessing. You should have no doubts about that. There are some teachers around that might create a doubt there. You should have no doubt about that. One of your most important aspects of your defense against Satan's most vicious attacks is your firm faith in eternal security, sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And I urge you to, to, to deal with that aggressively in your study. And uh, a couple of quick verses, 2 Timothy 1.12. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. My security is in Christ's hands, not mine. They're in my hands, I'd screw it up. It's in His hands, it's in His Father's hands, the Holy Spirit's hands. There's a whole study, you can get into that. But let's just refresh our memory with Romans 8, where he, Paul says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? And who shall say, lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ is praying for you right now. Wow. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, those are ranks of angels again, remember? 
angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew. Romans 8, from 28 to the end of the chapter. Pick it up. I put a tab in my Bible. Whenever I'm down, I just jump in there. You can't come out feeling anything but fabulous. Take the helmet of salvation. And by the way, you can t just owning it, it's not enough. You've got to wear it. You've got to wear it. You can tell the guys that aren't wearing their helmets by the bandages. Right? And the sword of the Spirit... Well, that's one that we're all familiar with. That's an idiom that's, I'm sure, not unfamiliar to each one of us. The sword of the Spirit, which is an idiom for what? The Word of God. Now, the sword of the Romans was a machaira. It was only 24 inches long. This is very sharp on both sides. This is quite surprising because the traditional view of swordsmanship is a long sword is better than a short one. The, 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 the standard weapon in their day was a, a slight curved sword that was done by chopping and, and, and the longer the better and so forth. And I can remember when I was having boxing challenges in the academy. I, f I hate boxing, but I have a long reach. And that was, that, that was some help. Still was not my favorite thing, but anyway. Um, but the Romans did something different. Rather than a long sword, they dealt in a short sword that was sharpened on both edges. It was a very, at the time, a very radically different kind of weapon. And with that weapon, they conquered the world. The Roman armies conquered the world. They achieved legendary victories. But there's two things about that short sword you have to understand. It required special training. Just giving you a short sword didn't do it. But if you, with that, you develop techniques to miss the first swing and close in, close quarters, it was a winning strategy. But you had no idea to use it. Special training and lots of practice. And I think that's interesting because that's our jeopardy with our sword of the Spirit. We need to have special training go along with it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ephesians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us at 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.